we will now be reading Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, you guys, and thank you, band, for leading us in worship this morning. That was fantastic. You could have put that on repeat, do it all day. This is why you need to come in the service if you can. I'm telling you, on fire. You guys were rocking. Okay, my name is Brian. Uh, I'm an elder candidate here at Trailer Church, and it is my privilege and really uh, my great desire to be here with you this morning. We're going to be talking about the golden rule, and many of you guys have probably heard about the golden rule. In fact, if I asked you, let me just try this a little bit. I'm going to start with the first few words, and don't look at your Bibles, but see if you can finish it, okay? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Good. Okay. Some of us need to go back to Sunday school, but most of us have a good sense, or at least have heard that before, where you can fill in the gaps. And here's the thing. The golden rule is a very, very popular scripture, which means believers, non-believers, Christians, non-Christians, most people in our culture have heard about it, or at least have some kind of vague understanding of it. It's become a part of our vernacular. And so I thought this morning it would be insightful if we took a moment and we looked at four quotes, four quotes from famous Americans, and just got their thoughts. What did they have to say about the golden rule? Okay, And there was a point to this. We'll get to that point. You're going to find the quotes in your bulletin. It's an online bulletin. If you don't have the bulletin, I've, I've got them on the slide, and we'll, we'll walk through them. Okay, So if you don't have it, no worries. If you're at home, no worries. But here's the thing. We're going to give them a glance. We're going to take a look at them, and we're going to see, um, yeah, just what kind of insights can we glean from people's perspective on the golden rule? Because it's one of those things that's so popular, I think it would be interesting to see. And just we're on the same page, quotes do not equal endorsements. I'm not endorsing any of these quotes. I'm simply bringing them to you as what people think, okay? Okay, first quote. This comes courtesy of Mr. T. I believe, come on, give Mr. T some love. I believe in the golden rule. He says, the man with the gold rules. Okay. Uh, seems to be in keeping with what we would expect from Mr. T. Uh, and we get what he's saying, though. Money is power. Everything else is a bit of pretending. And so I guess if I was going to rewrite his, his quote and kind of put it more into the biblical language, I, I, this is how I'd do it. Do unto wealth so that others can't do unto you. Right? Kind of a protection, kind of a hedge. You don't want, you don't want to be the person that's on the out and out. I believe this is something like Mr. T. I'm, I'm getting some feedback. I'm not sure if we can lower the volume of my, my mic here inside. So this is just rough approximation, but I think it works for us. Let's, go, let's move on to the next quote. This is from uh, Mr. Matt LeBlanc. Oh, cut it off. That's too bad. Uh, I keep waiting for the roof to cave in. I was raised to follow the golden rule, you know. Treat people the way you wish to be treated. That's kind of the way I live my life. Maybe, and I'll read the, the bottom. You can't see it. Maybe somebody up there likes me for that. Okay, that's what he says. Maybe somebody up there likes me for that. This is Matt LeBlanc. Okay, honest fellow has a certainly more traditional understanding of this passage. Some uncertainty as well. And so if I were to rewrite this 
in, in, in kind of more of a Bible phrasing, I would say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and hopefully that's enough. Right? You get that sense where he's like, man, I hope somebody upstairs likes me. I, I, I'm, I'm waiting for the roof to cave in. How many of us live like that? Okay, next one. This is George Bernard Shaw, and this is his golden rule. The golden rule is that there are no golden rules. Okay? Um, now, here's the thing. There's an argument that Shaw is making. Okay? Uh, he shuns, he disagrees, he's pushing back on any notion of a uh, universal moral principle. Okay? He, he does not like this. And, and this is very much in keeping with most humanist thought around the turn of the 20th century. Things like the golden rule were considered way too outdated, way too passe, and that they limited a person from considering or developing their own morality, okay? Which, in his eyes, true morality could only come from within, never from above, okay? So that's the argument he's making. So if I was going to put this into biblical language, I would say, do unto others as you define good, right? For all universal moral principles are false. He's making statements, making a claim. He's like, I've got my own rule. I don't need anybody else to tell me. My rule comes from within, okay? Popular today. Very, very popular today. Fourth quote. This is our last quote. Dang, got cut off as well. I'll read it. Absolutely speaking, do unto others as you would that they should do unto you is by no means... We're definitely reading Thoreau because that, that makes no sense. Do unto others as you would that they should do unto you is by no means a golden rule, but the best of current silver. An honest man would have but little occasion for it. It is golden not to have any rule at all. This is... This is Henry David Thoreau, okay? And uh, if you don't know Thoreau, he was a kind of leading figure within the transcendentalist movement. And transcendentalism taught that effectively people were inherently good, okay? Society, institutions, the things around people is what polluted them. And so for, for people to function at their best, they needed to be self-reliant and independent, okay? Another way of putting this is an honest man would have no need for a golden rule, because an honest man would be a rule unto himself. Okay? It's effectively the argument that Thoreau is making. So if I was going to rewrite his quote, I'd write it like this. Do unto others, the best people need no further instruction. Right? All right. Uh, let's go ahead and put all these quotes up there and, and, and see if we find anything of interest as we're kind of looking at them together. And again, there's, there's a point to this. So first one, Mr. T, rockin'. Uh, and then we got Matt LeBlanc, and then we've got Shaw, and, and lastly Thoreau. And so as I'm looking at this, there's three observations that, that's coming to my eye, and I've had the benefit of seeing these longer before that, than you have, but, but here's what I'm seeing. I, I'm noticing that none of these answers are remotely the same. None of them. Like, they all differ. Maybe three and four you could kind of categorize together. And it begs the question, if this passage, which is so popular, it's part of our vernacular within America, if this is such a popular passage and everyone knows it and everyone thinks they understand it, what do we do when we get to widely different interpretations? It begs the question, doesn't it? How do we best understand this text? Is there one meaning to the text? Do we have multiple meanings to this text? If there's more than one meaning available, are we able to choose? Is it kind of choose which one you like the best? Are we stuck with the one we like the least? All these are good questions, I believe, and, and this morning we're going to get into them. But before we do that, 
There's two more observations I think are, that will be helpful as we're trying to parse out what's the golden rule. Okay, second. I find it strange that three out of the four do their best to actually rewrite the rule, right? Like, none of them, none of them get it perfect. Even the second one, they add this addendum. Hopefully that's enough, right? But the first, third, and fourth, they take the text of the golden rule and just completely do their own thing with it. And I find this interesting because, in my opinion, they're moving away from trying to find out what the text says and instead seem more interested in arguing what they think the text should say. Right? There's different modes of thought we can have as we approach Scripture. We can come over Scripture or we can come under Scripture. Coming over Scripture is where we look at Scripture and we're like, you know what, I'm not too interested in what the author meant. And we really can't know what he meant anyway. So I'm going to be reader-focused, reader-centric, and, and I'm going to read into the text what I believe it should be. Okay? Or you can come under the text. What did the author have in mind? And what does it mean for me? And how do I best understand Scripture and apply it to myself? And really, LeBlanc is the only one in the ballpark of that. And still, he has an addendum. But he's the only one. And finally, when I'm looking at these, all of these seem to value the self above and more than anything else. Look with me. First quote, Mr. T, he's looking to his money, his wealth. LeBlanc, what is he looking to? His good works. Shaw, to his definition of good. And Thoreau, for his ethic. All of these quotes take the golden rule and they make it about self. My question for you, is that the golden rule? Is the golden rule fundamentally about the self? Or are they missing something? Are we missing something in our modern vernacular when it comes to the golden rule? Love to say it, have it on bumper stickers, but what does it mean? You know, one thing we haven't done yet is look at the text itself. So let's put up the actual text, and I'm going to compare this now with, with what we've seen up here and see if we notice anything different. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. You know, it's funny that none of the quotes we looked at had anything about law and prophets. That seems like a big oversight, doesn't it? None of them mentioned any of that. Well, for the inquisitive among us, let's go ahead and take a peek. What does Jesus mean by the law and the prophets? A few weeks ago, I laid out two passages, two scriptures, that really sum up what we mean by the law and the prophets. I'll have them up here for you. One comes from Deuteronomy, and the other comes from Leviticus. Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.8. Deuteronomy, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Okay? And Leviticus 19.18, it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. Okay? He's speaking to Israelites at this point. But love your neighbor as yourself, declares, I am the Lord. And just in case you're wondering, Brian, are you just picking those passages out of nowhere? No. Long history known as the Shema, that this was kind of the crux of what 
you know, the Israelites knew the, the law, the heart of the law to be, but, uh, but Jesus actually has something to say on the matter as well, taken later in Matthew, chapter 22, verses 36. This is what he has to say. Somebody asks him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? It's one of the lawyers. It's part of the, the Pharisees. And they're asking him this question. They're trying to corner him. And this is what Jesus says. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He's quoting the Shema. And then he says, this is the great and first commandment, number one. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, look with me, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus' argument, when he's making this argument, when he's talking about doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, and he says, this is fundamentally about the law and the prophets, this is what he has in mind. This is, and if you don't get this, if you miss this, if this isn't part of your quote, you're missing all of it. And I'm not trying to condemn anybody. I, I get it. It's a fun word. It's a fun phrase. I'm just saying there's more to it. There's so much more to it. And so, so what does this mean for us? I think, like the Pharisees, like the writers of our quotes, we tend to make the golden rule about us. About what we do, how we do it, and, and who we do it for. But I think when we take this path, when we take this path, it's only a matter of time before the weight of our rule bears down on us, suffocates us, and it forces us to try harder, like LeBlanc. Well, I hope I'm good enough. Or to redefine the rule in materialist terms, like Mr. T. You know what? Forget God's game. I just need money, because I know how the game works. I know the world works. Or for the most cunning among us, this is what we do. We actually redefine God out of the equation altogether. Shaw and Thoreau did this. They they saw themselves as moralist heroes, untethering humanity from the shackles of a universal narrative. That's one way to do it. But if I may be so bold, none of the quotes, none of those positions, none of them capture the golden rule, much less live us or enable us to live by it. And here's why. All of them, all of them end with self. They do not go beyond it. And this is where I think our scripture this morning has an invitation for us. If we have faith to receive it. See, I believe that the golden rule is actually a byproduct. It's a byproduct of those who have reached the end of themselves. Not whose end is themselves. It's a byproduct of those who trust in Christ alone. And here's why. God loved us while we were still sinners. And it's that radical transforming love for those who believe that has the power to waken us from death to life. It's the only power that frees us, that calls us, that enables us to love. All other loves are self-focused. They derive their power from self, which means they'll undoubtedly fail. Only in Christ are we freed, called, and enabled to love. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be freed, called, and enabled? There's, there's two points. I believe our text is pointing us to. It's, it's calling us one. We, we must ask the Father. We must go to the Father. We must seek the Father. We must knock. And that's what our passage is, is starting with. We'll dive into that. What, what, why? Why is that important? And the second piece is take joy in the Father. And you might think, well, that's odd, but... Trust me, woven throughout our scripture this morning is an invitation to constantly take joy. 
So I believe, as we dive in, that these principles will really become far more apparent and far more life-giving for us. Here's the fundamental truth. Asking the Father, taking joy in, in the Father. These, these are pillars, right? They're fundamental to our faith. And I believe that without freedom in Christ, we could never love our neighbor. And without joy in Christ, we would never want to. So let's start. Verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Okay. Diving into our text, there's three imperatives. Right? An imperative is like a command. It's a, it's a word that implies action. So with this in mind, Jesus is telling the crowd to go and do. And this is what he's telling them to do. Ask, seek, and knock. And by way of implication, we, the reader, are being asked to do the exact same thing. So what does it mean to ask, seek, and knock? Well, let's start with the question. Is there a difference between asking, seeking, and knocking? You know, and the more I dove into this, the more I found that, yes, there are some differences. And quite honestly, we could, if we wanted to, spend this morning and break out the three, what's the specific asking, seeking, and knocking. But overall, the thrust of the words... There's, there's far more similarity than distinction. Far more similarity. And that seems to be the thrust of what Jesus is actually pushing us towards. And so with that in mind, I'm going to move forward just using the word ask, but, but know that that's kind of a catch-all term for, for each of these words, okay? So it brings us back to the question, what does it mean to ask? And thankfully, we don't have to go very far for the answer. Verse 9 says, For which of you, one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? And then again in verse 10, or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. Now in both cases, note who the crowd is. The crowd in this case is placed in the position of father. And the father would have been in a position of provision and security. Okay, But did you catch who was doing the asking? The son. Well, what does that son represent? What does it signify? It signifies a position of need. Thus, to ask is to assume a position of need. Stated differently, you don't ask for something if you don't need it. You also don't ask for something if you can provide it yourself. To ask is to admit need. To ask is to acknowledge dependence. And think about this. Why do people ask for things? It's because they need it. Why is Jesus telling us to ask? It's because we have Needs. Because we have needs. It's the first part of this. Continuing in verse 11. If you then, who are evil, and we'll talk about that shortly, I'll talk about that in a bit, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Okay. I want to focus on that last phrase. We'll come back to this phrase several times. To those who ask him. So we just discussed to be in a position of asking is to be in a position of need, right? What does it mean to ask? How do you ask the Father? How do you communicate with God? How do you talk to God? You pray. You pray. So when Jesus says to those who ask him, what Jesus has in mind are people who are praying to him. People who are praying to God. Now we know that to ask presupposes need, which, so another way you could say this is Jesus is talking about people who recognize and bring their need to 
in prayer to God. And I catch this. You and I want to live out the golden rule. We, we all want to live out the golden rule, or at least have the golden rule lived, lived out for us, right? And Jesus is giving us an insight into how this happens. He's giving us an insight into how this becomes true. And here's what he's saying. The golden rule is a byproduct of a person who goes to the Father in prayer. The golden rule is a byproduct of a person who runs to the Father with their need and brings it before him. When I was in my early 20s, I was walking through a season where God began to convict me of my prayer life. Now, the fact was I'd become very complacent in my prayers. And, and though I was meeting my, my kind of what I had structured myself to do each day, uh, most of my prayers were around my physical needs, around crises that would happen. And a lot of them, if I'm just honest, were, were focused on me. Most of my prayers were focused on me. And very few of them went beyond the sphere of my life. And, and so, you know... It, that was me. And it, quite honestly, if that's you this morning, it's a, it's a fine place to start. A lot of us, when we're starting to build life of dependence on God, that's kind of where we begin. We're just praying, praying about the needs we have. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. The Lord is gracious to use that to share us, to shape us, to mold us, to, to, to begin to develop us. But there's always a greater invitation, and that greater invitation is to you know, kind of take our eyes off ourselves and actually put it back on Jesus. And for, for me in that season, that greater invitation was beginning to weigh on me. And I was beginning to feel more and more and more uh, unease to the point where I could tell the Lord was inviting me to a greater place of dependence. So for me, this is what happened. I began to make a prayer list and I would actually write down the prayer requests of people who asked me for prayer requests. Like up to that point, if somebody said, hey, could you pray for me? Normally what I do is I pray for them right on the spot, totally forget, right? Because unless I write it down, I'm not going to remember it. So I started to remember these things, and I started to write them down, and it was good, it was challenging, and through it all, I, I saw my heart growing in anticipation for prayer. But all of a sudden, I can't remember a specific day, at, at some point I began to feel an uneasiness again. Something was off, something was wrong, something was moving me, and, and the more I tried to ignore it, the more it would linger in the back of my mind. And, and, and one day I remember coming home, early 20s, 22 or whatever, in my apartment, and I had a conviction to pray for this guy. And this guy was a guy I'd known back in high school, and to say that I didn't like this guy was to put it mildly. I, I loathe this guy. He was not a good guy, in my opinion, not a good friend. And the Lord brought him to my mind. I was like, no, there's no way I'm praying for that guy. I'm not doing it. But over time, I'm sitting in my room praying, and I'm just feeling this burden. I'm like, man, I feel like i got to lift this guy up in prayer. And my first prayers were kind of pitiful, right? Like, I hope he isn't beaten by someone today too badly. You know, it's like, you know, rough him up a bit, I'd be okay with that. And yet over time, my heart began to soften this guy. And I had no idea. I had no idea. I was like, am I going to run into this man at some point? Am I, you know, what is the Lord doing in this? And I didn't know. But I began to realize something about the power of prayer. I began to realize the key of prayer. And this is it. That prayer often changes us more than it changes the situation or people we're praying for. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Prayer does change things on the ground. God uses it that way. It can, it does, he does. But the practice of prayer, the discipline of prayer, the constant renewing of prayer, what it often is doing is impacting us to depend now think back to the golden rule in verse 12. This is what it states. For whatever you wish 
that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And we remember that the law and the prophets is that we love God and love others. Okay? And as I argued before, the golden rule is a byproduct of those who have reached the end of themselves, those who have come to the end of themselves and are now trusting in Christ alone, and now Christ is giving us the invitation to come to him with our need, to come to him in prayer, to come to the Father. And here's what happens. This is amazing. When we begin to build a life of dependence on the Father, pray on the Father, need before the Father, here's what happens. Our hearts begin to be shaped. And they begin to be shaped to trust the Father. You know, one of the ways that we actually will love other people is when we know that it's not in our hands. When we know the consequences of what will ever happen are in his hands, they're not in my hands. Which means I don't have to jockey the situation, I don't try to have to manipulate everything, I don't have to try to control everything. I can be. I can love and I don't have to try to be God in that situation. When Jesus is saying, ask, seek, and knock, he's telling us something about God's character. Okay? But he's also revealing us a pathway. He's revealing us a pathway. Hey, you want to live out this golden rule that's a byproduct? This is how it starts. Run to the Father. Pray. Run to the Father. Need. Run to the Father. Dependence. So what does it mean to be freed, called, and enabled? We ask the Father. Because we know that God frees our heart to love. And, and really, this piece right here, freeing our heart, that is a gift from the Father. That is a gift from the Father. Because we know that without freedom in Christ, we could never love our neighbor. But without joy in Christ, we'd never want to. So that's the other pillar. We're going to look at that right now. Verse 9. And we've already read these things, but they're so good, we're going to read them again. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Just think about that for a second. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Do you ever wonder, pause, do you ever wonder why Jesus uses children in so many of his examples? Just so you're aware, Jesus didn't have kids of his own. But he uses children in a lot of examples. Why is that? Think of a small child. Like, I don't have kids, neither did Jesus. Think of a small child. Think of their dependence. Think of their need. Unable to provide for themselves. Unable to care for their needs. We shudder to think of a world without parents because we know how vulnerable children are. Yet look with me in verse 11. Who is Jesus comparing the crowd with? Who is he comparing the crowd with? He's comparing the crowd with the children. Right? I'll, I'll read that again. I'm not sure where that text went, but here's, here we go. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? 
In this scenario, Jesus is now juking them, the crowd is the child. And we as the reader are now being invited into the position of the child. Okay, this is intentional. He's telling us something about the way we relate with the Father. And here's what he's saying. We are like children before God. Dependent. In need. You're like, Brian, what does this have to do with joy? It has everything to do with joy. Everything. Pause with me for another second. Think of a child filled with joy. The way their eyes light up. The way their faces scrunch with anticipation and excitement. There's something truly remarkable. It's one of the great mysteries and one of the great blessings in life. You're like, I don't have kids. Neither did Jesus. And he knew about kids. And thankfully, thankfully, guys, it really doesn't take all that much for a child to have joy. Usually, it doesn't take all that much. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a toy lying on my floor and one of the four kids has wrapped themselves in the box that the Amazon packages came in. Like, that wasn't even the toy box, right? That's just the toilet paper box. And they're running around up there, loving it, having a great time. Right? But it's not just that. It can also be at times at the park, running around with friends, paint supplies, if you're willing, if you're willing, bubbles. But if we're honest, how many times, think about this, how many times all it takes for your child's joy to be unlocked is time, time with you. They just want you. Man, this is so wild because Jesus is, again, putting us in the position of child. And think of what he's doing here, guys. Think of what he's doing. Why is it that what we observe so clearly in children, we often overlook in ourselves? Anyone who has spent more than a second with the child knows they want to read with you, pray with you, look at, have you look at their art. They want to go outside with you. They want time with you. You are their joy. Now, if we as imperfect and sin-filled cause this reaction in our children, how much more, how much greater is the joy we are offered in Christ? This is not infantilism. I'm not suggesting childlike behavior, but I am saying we must have a childlike heart. And you're thinking, where does that say that in the Bible? Well, turn with me Matthew 18 too. You knew that was coming. This is Jesus' words, and this is what he says. He says, calling to him a child, he put the child in the midst of him. He said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is getting at the heart here, right? A childlike behavior, a childlike heart. And in the process, he's inviting us to himself. He's inviting us to himself. Why is this important? When we begin to approach God as Father, good, gracious, loving, and kind, running to Him, trusting in Him, wanting to spend time with Him because He is our joy, guess what happens as a byproduct of that? You start loving people. You start loving people. If you make the golden rule your aim, you're going to miss it every time. If you make Jesus your aim, you get Him and everything else thrown in. Focus on Jesus. That's the invitation, guys. And it is sweet. 
It truly is. See, these are the two pillars of the faith, freedom in Christ and joy in Christ. And I've said this many times, and I'll say it again. Without freedom in Christ, we could never love our neighbor. But without joy in Christ, we wouldn't want to. So how does this play out? What does this actually look like? This is where it gets a little tricky. Some of you guys are coming in here and you're in a difficult season because you're struggling to love. And you might be struggling to love for a variety of reasons. Maybe you've been hurt. Hurt happens. Maybe you're struggling to forgive because the person that needs forgiveness hasn't asked for it or you'd just rather not give it. Maybe you're struggling with anger. You're in a season where you're just, I'm just angry at people. I can't understand the way they think. I can't understand the way they, they, they see the world. And I'm struggling to love the people around me. Now, here's the thing. I just described to every single person in this room. Because at some point, we're all going to come across people or across situations or across something that's going to push us to say, I just don't want to. I don't want to love. I don't want to be kind. I don't want to be gracious. I don't want to think about this. I don't want to do any of this. Okay. So what do we need to do? Ah, man. Only in Christ are we freed, called, and equipped to love. And that, Here's the thing. Here's the, here's the real big deal. We ask the Father. We take joy in the Father. But this is the prayer I'm asking you to pray. Pray for a heart that trusts. Now, I know this sounds wild, but here's the thing. When you're praying for people, when you're going through your prayer list, and you're t- you've got people on mind, and you're like, you know what, I need to forgive this person, I need to forgive this person, this person needs to change, this person's going down destructive path, they need to change, all these things are true, all these things are good, all these things are likely things you should be praying for. But the first prayer, the first prayer is, Lord, give me a heart to trust you. Give me a heart to trust you. To pray and ask to trust in God is one of the greatest invitations God gives us. See, when we pray fear-filled prayers, you know what a fear-filled prayer is? We've all prayed them. It's where we know God can do it, but we're not really sure he's going to do it, or we're not really sure his way is the best way to do it, and so we really don't leave it in his hands. We kind of skirt around God in our prayer. It's like, oh, I know you can take care of this, but really this is what needs to happen, and this is really kind of what the scenario needs to play out as. We've all had those prayers. Fear-filled prayers. But when we do that, when we pray that way, when we have that prayer, this is what we do. We undermine our joy in God. Because we're still trying to fix it on our own strength. See, we need to come to the Father... And we need to bring our need, like Jesus said, and we need to ask him to take it and trust him that he will. Trust that he will provide. Trust that he will make it happen in whatever way he sees fit in whatever time he deems necessary. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, when you do that, you are freed to live in joy. And you're like, no, that sounds like anxiety. No, 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 no. It, it can be if you're still trying to wrestle with it. You're still holding on to it. God, come in here, but I'm not letting go. No. You bring it to him. You say, God, give me a heart that trusts you. Give me a heart that trusts you. And trust that he will see it through, that he will get it done. Okay. In closing, I want to look at Jesus for a second. Because I know this is hard. I know this is hard. We pray for hearts that trust because this is hard. 
but we also should place our eyes on Jesus. Guys, he was the only one in human history who sought the Father in perfect obedience. Only one who did it with all joy. Fully freed to love and filled with joy that he would. And I want to look at how Jesus instructed us to pray because it gives us a great insight into how he prayed. Matthew 6, verse 9. This is the Lord's Prayer. Pray then like this. This is what Jesus says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay, here's a few things I'm seeing. An invitation to ask the Father. Knowing that Christ has made a way for us to approach the throne of grace. Otherwise, there's no other way we could say our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Unless he made the way. That's, that's the invitation to ask. Here's the invitation to trust. Knowing his kingdom is secure and that his advancement on the earth will not spoil. Look at this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Invitation to trust. There's an invitation to hope here. He's going to forgive us our debts even as we have forgiven those who have wronged us. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Invitation to hope. And finally, an invitation to walk with the Father knowing that he works through the trials we face for our joy and for his glory. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Invitation to trust, invitation to ask, invitation to hope, invitation to walk, all with the power, all empowered by what Jesus did on the cross. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the thing. If you don't know Jesus... Gold rule's not your question. Jesus is your question. You need Jesus. You need him today. And he is offering and inviting you to come and believe, to come. Stop with the resume. Stop with the money. Stop with the good work. Stop with redefining what is good. Stop with redefining what the ethic is. None of those things save. None of them can save. The invitation is to trust. The invitation is to come and need. The invitation is to place down the Father and say, I trust you. And it's a beautiful, I mean, it's a beautiful hope. You couldn't make this up if you wanted to. It is beyond our ability and skill because when we think to ourselves, we go back to the self. But for those of you here who have trusted in the finished work of Christ, who have trusted in him that your joy may be complete, have trusted in his freedom, then let me bring you to our last point, which is that by trusting in the freedom of Christ, we can actually love our neighbor. And through our joy in Christ, we will actually want to. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this text this morning. It is a wild thing when we start thinking about how often this scripture is used and how uh, popular this, this passage has become and yet how many takes and, and viewpoints of it actually miss Miss the beauty, miss the power, miss the enabling, miss the call. 
Lord, I pray that would not be so for us. I pray that we would be a people who cast our eyes, ask you, seek you, knock, run with our need. Lord, I pray that we would have a heart like a child to find joy, to know and spend time, to want to spend time. Lord, trusting that as the more we ask, the more we trust, the more we come and enjoy your presence and joy, the more that the golden rule is lived out as a byproduct. Father, I want to lift up those today who are far from you. They don't know you. They may think they do or they're running from you. And Lord, I pray that today's message, your word would soften them. To stop running, to stop trying to figure it out on their own, to stop trying to be the golden rule in and of themselves. And recognize there's an invitation to something far greater, to a relationship with you, to connection with you, to union with you. Lord, for those of us here who do believe, we do confess, we do trust, but we're struggling to love. Lord, I pray that we would not be beguiled into thinking, if I can just focus more on this love aspect, focus more on doing the golden rule, that that's somehow going to happen. But that we would see the greater invitation to place our eyes back on you, to place our cares back on you, to place our trust and hope back on you, knowing that you will change us. And Father, we are grateful and thankful. And we come to you in awe. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.